0: You can leave us a one-time gift or set up a recurring general donation. Thank you for your support, and now let's begin today's message. Let's open up our Bibles, if you haven't already. We're in uh, Mark chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 35. I'll read to verse 40, because that's a portion of Scripture we're going to be handling today, looking at today. Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 35, reading to verse 40. Mark writes, Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes said that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And so we're going to be looking at this really as two separate and yet studies that combine. But I'll be looking at the first portion of this where Jesus is speaking concerning how the scribes say that that the Christ is the son of David. We'll look at that and then we're going to pick up in uh, verse 38 and 39 with the warning that he gives to the people who are listening to him. So let me begin with my introduction as I normally do. As we have seen, Jesus' opponents have asked him three questions. The first question was whether it was lawful to pay a tax to Rome. The second concerned the resurrection from the dead. And then that third question was related to the greatest commandment. Luke reveals how they responded to him after he had answered them. In chapter 20 of his gospel, verses 39 and 40, it reads, Some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well. But after that, they dared not question him anymore. In other words, they became silent, not wanting to ask any more questions, and they withdrew. So, Jesus begins now to question them. I want to develop this with you for just a moment. I want you to know that he isn't being petty, and he's not being vindictive. He begins to ask them questions because this is his last week on earth. They need to make a decision. And He's once again giving them an opportunity to come to faith in Him. When you read your Bible, you'll see in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some men understand slowness, but is being patient with you. He does not want anyone to perish, but wants everyone to repent. If you just think for a moment concerning your own testimony... I don't know how old you were when, when you came to faith in Christ. You may have been young. You may have been raised in a Christian home and might not even be able to say the moment that you knew that Jesus was your Lord. But there are others here who could say, well, I was 15, I was 20, I was 30, 40, 50. We've had people in their 80s who came to faith in Christ, you know, at that late time in their, in their life. But think about the patience that God showed you. Think of his long-suffering how, He put up with you. He put up with me for so many years. And that's what what Peter was saying. God is not slack or slow concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us. We're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He he waited on you. He has patience with you. In 2 Peter 3.15, he said, remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. This is what our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. God has been patient with you. So I begin this, perhaps there's some viewing right now, perhaps outside, even in this room. God has been patient with you too. How long are you going to make him wait until you come to faith in him? You see, a great example of the patience of God is found in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. When you read Genesis, the earth had grown terribly wicked It was ripe for judgment. And in chapter 6 of the book of Genesis, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was altogether evil all the time. You see it as then, it is that way now. Jesus says, As the days of Noah were, so shall the days be prior to his return. It's the same thing. Watch what's taking place around us. It seems that every inclination is evil all the time and so that's what's taking place before the great flood in genesis 6 verse 3 god had said my spirit will not contend with man forever for he's mortal his day shall be 120 years god gave them 120 years as he patiently waited for them first peter 320 says it like this god waited patiently while noah was building the ark But after the time was fulfilled, judgment came upon the earth. And so we may be thinking the Lord is slack concerning His promise, but He's being patient and He's waiting. And in the case of Christ with these people, it's His last week and He's ministering to them and He's giving them further opportunity to the very end, really, to come to faith in Him. And so that's what we're picking up here in this particular portion of Scripture. So notice in verse 35, how it begins by saying, Jesus answered and said, while well, he taught in the temple. So he's in the temple courtyard. He's instructing those who will come by and listen to what he has to say. And he now asks a question. He asks it of the religious leaders, those who are referred to as the separated one, the Pharisees. Now, they were huddled off to the side. They were considering what they're going to do next. In Matthew 22:41. 41 Uh, Matthew tells us that the Pharisees were gathered together. They were huddled up. Now, Jesus had just taught that the greatest command was to love God and to love others. And he said to love God and to love the neighbor is fulfilling God's law. So now he's fulfilling the command to love by pointing them to himself. He's loving them by telling them about the truth. He's telling them about salvation. But the Pharisees, the Pharisees were ensnared by a system that was built on their good works. They weren't aware of what is grace. They didn't understand the grace of God. Even as Paul later was to clearly state to the book in Titus and in chapter 3, verse 5, where, where Paul had said, he saved us, not by the righteous deeds we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of new birth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. They didn't know about the grace of God. They didn't know that, that it was by, by grace that you're saved and, and not by works. They didn't know it's a washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. They didn't know this. They didn't understand that they had a works righteousness system. So as they're listening to Christ speak, they're, they're, they're thinking within themselves, how can these things be? How, how is this going to happen? How? And they're, wanting, they're huddling up and they're, they're planning how they're going to continue to, to uh, oppose him and all of that. You see, apart from Christ, no Pharisee or anybody else could ever be saved. What he's doing is he's calling them to salvation by himself. And he's saying, you can come to salvation through me. That's what he's saying. It's like what Peter would later say in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, where he said, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. So the people today, as they have for many years, think, well, you Christians are so narrow-minded. And the fact is, yes, we are, because narrow is the way. Jesus made it very clear. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And so we preach the gospel, and that's what's taking place. Jesus is speaking to these people, and as he's doing so, he's trying to awaken them to see who he is. So he asks the question because they need to make a decision about him. And it's the most important question anybody must ever answer. Now, notice he asks this question of the Pharisees, but he does so in front of witnesses, in front of the people. And it's a question that centers on Messiah. So he says in verse 35, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, is the son of David? He's asking why the religious scholars call Messiah, son of David. Now, Matthew gives us a clearer picture of, of how this is taking place, because in Matthew twenty two forty two, 42, he writes that Jesus said, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He's responding here in Mark. By saying, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? Now, what he's about to do is he's about to inform them something of Messiah that they don't know. He's informing them that the Christ is not simply a man. He's informing them that Messiah is not simply a teacher. He's informing them that Messiah is not only a prophet because Jesus was all of that. But he's not simply a man. You see, even today, many Jews believe that Messiah is simply a man. They believe that Messiah is a deliverer, like the prophet Moses. In Deuteronomy, Moses wrote in chapter 18, verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, From your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. I've been in Israel many times. Again, we are prayerfully going to go in in March. And if you've never been, I'll take this opportunity to invite you. But we have been. No, I'm not paying. But we have. We've been in Israel many times. And one of my guides uh, in our very early days uh, was an Orthodox Jewish man. His name was David. And uh, David and I had a conversation when I first began to go to Israel back in the early 80s. And I asked him, what is it that you as an Orthodox Jew believe about your Messiah? What do you believe about Messiah? He said, Messiah is a man. I'll never forget him saying that. Like unto Moses, even as the Scripture says, when Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me. He said, We Jews, speaking of himself, perhaps speaking for other Jewish people in the Orthodox religion, he said, we believe that the Messiah is a man. That's where we differ with you Christians. So he's very open about what he he believes, and I appreciated that very much. He said, You Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. We believe that's a violation of his command where he said that you should not have an image of anything from heaven. So in you stating that you believe that Jesus Christ is a God is a God in the flesh, we Orthodox Jews would differ with you. That belief that he has now, he still holds that belief, is a belief Jesus was dealing with 2,000 years ago. Jesus is dealing with that in this question. He's asking them, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And so, that's the same question. You see, what concerned me when my friend David brought that up and said it that way is it gave to me insight into the vulnerability of Israel to the Antichrist, who is going to be a prophetic-type figure He's going to be performing miracles and all. We've already seen this many times in Scripture. We've gone through it in some detail when we went through Revelation. We have his false prophet. There will be miracles that are occurring and all of that. And he's going to steal the heart of the people. You see, he's going to be regarded as a Messiah in a messianic way. And by that's going to deceive. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 and 10 says, The coming of the lawless one, which is another title of Antichrist, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how satan works he will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve the lie and all the ways that and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved so they're rejecting and will reject messiah now when jesus is speaking here jesus asks again how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You see, the Pharisees knew that Messiah would be from King David's line because 1,000 years earlier, God had made that promise to King David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13 in the Old Testament, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your seed to succeed you, who will come from your own body." and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So that was a promise that God had made a 1,000 years earlier to King David. The psalmist in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4 said it like this, You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. That was something that the Pharisees were well aware of. And so Jesus in verse 35 says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Your own teachers say Messiah is the son of David. So first he's asking a question about that, but he moves on. You see, they they knew that Jesus was often called son of David. We saw in chapter 10 of Mark, verses 46 and 47, how they had come to Jericho. And as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind by Timaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So they knew that Christ was being referred to. Jesus is referred to as the son of David. And so now what is he doing? He's calling them to make a decision. Is he the son of David? Is he Messiah? Well, he goes on in verse 36 and he says, For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstools. Now, David, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that Messiah is his Lord. Now, his inspiration, and Jesus is making it very clear. Look again in verse 36. David himself said, by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is making it very, very clear that the inspiration was of the Spirit. It wasn't some opinion, and it wasn't some human insight. Jesus said that when he wrote those words, that was inspired by God's Holy Spirit. So with that said, if the Messiah is simply a man who does, if, if Messiah is simply a man, then why does David declare him to be his Lord? It, it says, the Lord said to my Lord. When you see it's saying in verse 36, the Lord said to my Lord, the first time you see the word Lord there well, that's, that's uh, the divine name. That's also translated. Uh, many, we, we don't know the exact pronunciation, but they, they refer to that, those letters as Jehovah. Speaking of Jehovah God or God Almighty. So the Lord Jehovah said to my, uh, my Lord, but that's in the lower case. That's not speaking of Jehovah himself, but he's speaking to my Lord. Sit at my right hand. So what he's doing here is David is speaking of Messiah. But he's speaking of him as his Lord. What is this? Well, I want you to see that again. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What are you referring to there, David? It's a prophetic picture of the resurrection. It's a picture of Jesus and his ascension. The right hand, when he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, the right hand, you see that very often in Scripture, refers to a position a position of power and authority. It often is used to picture co-equality. So it speaks of rank. Messiah is seated in the most holy place at the right hand of the Father. When you read Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2, the writer said, Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the of the throne of God. The Lord said unto my Lord, sit here. This is speaking of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. But notice he goes on to say in verse 36, till I make your enemies your footstool. So all who reject Messiah will be subdued by Messiah, will be his footstool. In other words, all who are rejecting his authority will lie helpless before him. It's a prophecy, that Jesus will completely triumph over those who reject him. And the inference would be that would include them because they're rejecting Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12, the psalmist said it like this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Don't get God angry at you, in other words. In Philippians 2, 9 through 11, God exalted Jesus. God God exalted Him to the highest place, gave Him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. I always, always say the same thing whenever I read that. That includes Buddha. That includes Muhammad. That includes Sigmund Freud. That includes every human being who's ever walked the face of the earth. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's something we Christians need to understand. He is above all. He is everything, and to him goes all the glory. So as he's speaking concerning this in verse 37, therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? Messiah is more than a physical descendant of David, but he's his Lord. He is David's son by human birth, but he is his Lord by divine nature. And he's saying, whoever rejects me rejects David's Lord, who is Messiah. And as he's saying this, the people are listening. This wasn't done in a a quiet room where just the intellectuals were seated there with Jesus and he's explaining this. Jesus is confronting them in front of all the people. The people are listening into the conversation. You need to remember that the people that were around at that time, many of them did appreciate what Christ had to say. They were very much um, in, in favor of him. Now the 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 religious hypocrites, and you're going to see this in just a moment, there, there were many who looked at the, the people who were leading at that time as as being hypocrites. They didn't like what they were doing. They didn't like the way things were going and all of that. So when Jesus is speaking and he's confronting them, well, that's just something that they would have liked to have been able to do themselves. It would be something that they would like to have been able to do if, if only they could. They didn't know how to answer them. They didn't know how to respond to them. These are people who had been under their thumb for a long time. These are people who knew their teachings but didn't regard their behavior, and so so as Jesus is speaking and he's saying that the Messiah is actually the Lord of David himself, how can you say he's a mere man when David calls him his Lord and the people heard him gladly? They rejoiced at the things that he had to say. They responded in a way that was just a very positive way because they saw that Jesus was not just an ordinary man. They saw that Jesus Christ was was something beyond that. The words that he spoke, no one ever spoke like that. The things that he did, no one ever did things like that. The argumentation, the various times that that these religious authorities would confront him and not one of them could answer his questions. Not one of them could ever defeat him in any kind of a debate. These people began to hear him gladly. They appreciated that. They saw things in Christ that caused them to admire him. And as Jesus was speaking there, after going through all of this and they are witnesses of this, they say, oh, man, this guy is something else. This one is worthy of all of our respect and all of that. They heard him gladly. And I think that we do too. When we read the Word of God and we see how He responds, when we see the promises He makes, when we read of the things that He did, we would hear Him gladly also. Oh, how we would love to be able to be seated at His feet as He spoke, those wondrous words that He spoke, to be able to hear those things from, the, from his, his own mouth, to hear the sound of His voice for those words to, to, to find a home in our heart. And that's what was going on here. They're listening, and they see that these, these doctors of the law cannot understand, they cannot respond. And so the common people, the ordinary folk, heard him, and they did so rejoicing. So as this takes place, he goes on, verse 38, he said to them in his teaching, now this is in front of everybody, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes Love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Then he says, These will receive greater condemnation. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. That is pretty strong. So, what happens here? Let's transition for a moment here. Jesus moves from the beliefs of the scribes. To their behavior. Something we need to remember, and I think this is something that is often forgotten, or perhaps many don't realize this, but belief. What you believe always produces the way you behave. Belief produces behavior. Bad teaching produces badly lived lives. Bad teaching produces badly lived lives lives, because what you believe is how you live. And if you're not getting the f- full counsel of God through the Word of God, if you're getting man's opinions on certain subjects, whatever the subject may be, but not Scripture, then what you're yielding to at that point is the opinion of the teacher. The scribes, who are religious experts, the Pharisees We're like a religious denomination. Jesus is making it very clear that they say one thing, but they do another. The common people were aware of that. They could see the discrepancy between what these people said and what these people did. And so the fact is, they're aware of that. And and what you believe is what you ultimately will do. What happens is your beliefs become visible. The invisible, your beliefs, becomes visible by what you do. So somebody can say, oh, I really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But they may not. They may simply be saying that. I can still remember going on the, um, I was out witnessing. I was a brand-new Christian. I went to uh, on Whittier Boulevard in, in Whittier, and, and I went into the Bob's Big Boy. I think it may still be there. And I went into this particular parking lot with some friends of mine to share the gospel. And I knew very little. I was one of those guys who would just kind of walk along with others and learn from them to see how they did it and all. But there was somebody sitting in a pickup truck, a friend of mine, his name was Jeff. I still remember this as long ago as it was. And and I remember walking up, and I said, Oh, there's Jeff. You know, I know him. I'll talk to him. He's a friend. I don't have to, you know, have one of those conversations where you're speaking to a complete stranger. We're here to tell him about Jesus, and that's what I did. And I walked up to Jeff, and I, and I remember talking to him. I said, Jeff, how you doing, man? And he was drunk as a skunk. He was just, that's an old phrase, isn't it? He was very, very drunk. And I said, Hey, Jeff, how are you doing? And he goes, fine. And I mean, he's slurring his words the whole nine yards. And he said, listen, Jeff, I want to talk to you. No, I'd known him since we were in high school. So it was, I'd known him at that time around six years. And, and he was a friend of mine. And also I could speak frankly and honestly with him. And I said to him, listen Jeff I want to tell you something and I shared with them I want you to know that I got saved I gave my heart to Christ and Jesus has changed my life now that should have made an impact on them, from one at least on one level because we used to party together and so I'm telling them, I I gave my heart to Christ and I'll never forget as he's slurring his words in a drunken fashion and he said so did I So I'm looking at this drunk guy in a pickup truck who couldn't even drive himself. His friends had to drive him because he couldn't drive himself, but he's telling me he's born again. And I began to encounter that kind of thing where somebody's behavior is not consistent with what they say they believe. And when somebody is not living out what they say they believe, what they're really living out is what they do believe. So if they're out there drinking, they're out there partying, they're out there fornicating, they're out there doing whatever they're doing, that's what they believe. And so if someone's running around saying, oh, I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they habitually continue with no repentance or sense of remorse over that, there's a, there's a good reason why I would question whether they understand what it means to be a Christian. That is not to say you're perfect when you get saved. There's none perfect except for me. No, there's none perfect except for God. I know that, so don't think I'm judging people. I understand that. But if there's a consistency in their behavior their beliefs are telling me what they actually, um, their their behaviors showing me what they actually believe. Proverbs 20, verse 11, even a child makes himself known by his acts, by whether his conduct is pure and upright. Even a child demonstrates what he really is by the way he lives. And so Jesus is speaking here right now concerning this. And as he's doing so, he's beginning to give them some warnings. Now notice how, how he's actually, and it. it says in verse 38, he is saying this. Notice, he said to them in his teaching. So, he's now teaching them something. He's, he's speaking to them and openly rebuking them in front of the people. Now, Proverbs 27, 5 says, Open rebuke is better than love that is concealed. So, he's open. Verse 38, he says, Beware of the scribes, the legal experts those who know the law of Moses. Beware of them. He's saying, do not imitate their hypocrisy. Guard against their teachings. They are constantly turning people away from Jesus, and he's saying they should be avoided. He's saying they are religious hypocrites because they're seeking praise for themselves. All of their religious fervor is on the outside, but it doesn't originate on the inside. In Matthew 23, verse 5, Matthew says, all their works they do to be seen by men. Now, Jesus made that clear earlier on in the gospel of Matthew when he said they stand on street corners and they pray, or they make their face look to be a bit disfigured because they say they're fasting. Or they give their gifts in a way that gets a notice or attention by people. All of their works, he said, they do to be seen by men. They they wear special clothing. Notice, he says, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes. So they wear special clothing. They want to be noticed by the public. Uh, they, They go about in these long robes. Now, the long-flowing robes at that time were normally worn by royalty or priests. And so they were walking around with an outer exterior. They were like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but inside filled of decay. So they wear special clothing. It sets them apart from ordinary people. And so it's an outer thing. What should a genuine believer be clothed with? Well, In Colossians 3, verse 12, it says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What kind of clothing are you to wear? These are the spiritual things. These are garments that that are placed on you through the Lord's righteousness. There's that compassionate heart, the kindness of spirit. There's that true humility, not needing attention there's a gentleness in the way that you live, and there's a patience you have with those who don't know the Lord. Notice he says they love greetings, verse 38, in the marketplace. What does that mean? They want to go to, uh, to, to open aired places and, and be recognized. They want to be the prominent one in get, getting public recognition. Again, in Matthew 23, verse 7, Jesus said they love greetings in the marketplaces and, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi they 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 want that open public recognition they want to be seen by men all the works they do to be seen by men they wear these outer garments so that people see them as righteous royalty priesthood and all of that and they want titles but genuine believers do not seek special titles you know i in the past i've had opportunity where well actually even in this fellowship but others and uh, have asked this of me. They've said, what do you want me to call you? And it's kind of odd, especially in the earlier days of our ministry. They'd say, what do you want me to call you? I I, I had a, a newspaper reporter who was um, in my office on one occasion. She, and he said, what do you want me to call you? And I said, you can call me what other people call me. You can call me, O Holy One. No, I, I said, <laughs> very reverend. I, no, I exalted now you 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 can call me david that's my name you know call me by my name you see i even in this fellowship i've had people who are visiting or or new members and they have asked me that what should i call you i said my mom called me david so can you that's my name don't wear it out no that's my name (laughs) and i don't mind you know that's who i am because ultimately the sheep know the shepherd's voice Ultimately, somebody may call you me, pastor, but that's just a title. But one day it may become our relationship. So I don't force relationship. And so you don't go out there looking for special recognition. These people unfortunately did. They wanted recognition for their prominence. They loved those greetings in the marketplace. They wanted to be called rabbi. But a genuine believer doesn't seek a special title. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Paul said it like this. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He went on in verse 39. He said they loved best seats, the best seats in the synagogues. Uh, they wanted to be on the platform. The synagogue had could, could have a, a small platform in which there would be prayers and scriptural readings uh, occurring and all. But when they were up there, the people would see them, and they were getting the attention of the people as they entered in, and they would be seated there facing the people. But a genuine believer doesn't seek personal glory or special attention. Uh, John gave it to us the best way, I think, John the Baptist, when he spoke of Jesus, and he said in John 3, verse 30, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus needs to be the one that you see. He needs to be that one. And, and me, I'll be honest with you. I'll be real with you. As I say this, I've never felt comfortable with people wanting me to do certain things, and and all. Or to, I, I'm just very uncomfortable with that. And and I, I was at a pastors' conference on one occasion, and they gave us they gave us badges, you know, and this is something that maybe doesn't, maybe won't make sense to some. Perhaps it will to others. I don't know, but. I've always been the one that doesn't necessarily want to be known. And so because of that, I didn't want to wear the badge. I didn't want to wear the badge because this is an unfortunate reality, even in ministry, is many people didn't know me by face or voice because Calvary chapels are throughout the world, but they know my name. And so when people would get to know my name, they got to know my name Sometimes they would treat me differently, and I didn't like that. I didn't want to be treated differently because I'm on the radio where I do this or do that. I didn't like that. I still don't. I didn't like that. So I wouldn't wear my badge. They gave me a badge, and I wouldn't put it on. So I was walking in, and you needed to have a badge to get in and out of the conference. And I still remember I was about to walk in, and this guy looks at me, and he says, where's your badge? He was an usher standing there. And he says, you know better. He told me that. He says, you know better. You're supposed to be an example. And I said, shut up. No, I said, <laughs> he says, where's your badge? And I said, I don't need no stinking badges. I really did. I don't need no stinking badges. And he started to laugh. He says, you need to wear your badge and all that. I'm still that way. I don't, I don't like that. But sometimes people do. It's been said the most sweetest sound in a person's ears is his name on somebody else's lips. I think we better be careful about needing attention. And sometimes we do. We do things to be seen by men, and Jesus is saying that's what they're doing. They love the best places, the prominent places. They like to be on the platform. They like people to call them rabbi. They like all of those things. In in Luke 14, verses 7 through 11 It says, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that When he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Take the lower seat. And it's not just taking it because you think you're going to be exalted, but you're taking it because you're comfortable there. And that's what the Lord has taught us to do. He goes on and he says in verse 40 that they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They took money that should have supported the widows and their families. Isaiah 56, 11 speaks in this way. They are greedy dogs. They never have enough. They're shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. We see that, by the way, today quite often, when we have people saying to us in political circles, will say to us, "Oh, I understand your pain," but they really don't because they don't put they don't they don't stand in line to put gas in their own car. They're driven around everywhere. They don't pay for their own meals because our tax dollars pay for their meals. They don't pay for that first class upgrade to go and uh, you know, take a vacation and bring their whole family with them, because our tax dollars pay for those things. That attitude remains to this day. It's not just a religious attitude, it's a general attitude. They don't understand. And for pretense, in, a, in, the, uh, in, the, in the spiritual, the, the widow would come up and would say to the, to the rabbi, uh, could you please pray for me? And she knew that the amount of money she gave is going to uh, guarantee the length of the prayer prayed. So if she gave a small amount, it would be, God help this woman. You can go. But if she gave a large amount, he would give this long prayer for her. And she thought that by giving more money, the prayer would be more effective. And Jesus said, this is evil. This is wrong. You're taking advantage of those people and be careful with them. You see, true faith cares for those in need. In James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Notice how he says they receive greater condemnation. Why is that? It's because they have greater responsibility. In Luke 12.48, it says, from everyone... Who has been given much, much will be demanded, and from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Greatness in the kingdom is built on service to the king, and Christians are to humbly serve the Lord and, and give him all the glory, and that's because we're simply fulfilling what we're supposed to do. In Luke 17, 7 through 10, Jesus said, suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now, sit down and eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? Well, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. The false teachers... The scribes, their attitude was so bad. And he's saying, no, Jesus would teach us, no, you're only doing what you've been saved to do. It's like, like, like what Paul said when he said, all we are is servants of the king. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're simply his servants. That's what we are. You see, the question is asked in Romans eleven thirty five. who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Has God ever called me up for advice? No. Has God ever called me for a loan? No. And so why should I think he owes me anything? I'm a servant. I'm doing only that which I'm supposed to do. And that's what you're supposed to think like. These these scribes, these Pharisees, the religious leaders didn't think that way. Someone said, we have merited nothing. We have not benefited God or laid him under any obligation. If he rewards us, it will be a matter of unmerited favor. There was a man by the name of John Newton, we've heard of him. And John Newton said, I am persuaded that love and humility are the highest attainments in the school of Christ and the brightest evidences that he is indeed our master. And so when Jesus was speaking to these people, he was making it very clear Beware of the scribes. Beware of the religious hypocrites. Beware of those who teach one thing and do another. He said, be careful with their doctrine because the doctrine is going to create your behavior. So be discerning in the things that you believe and practice the things that are biblically sound. That's great advice then it's great advice now. It's a great teaching from Christ then. It's a great teaching from Christ now. Know what you believe know who you believe, and practice what you believe. And you will make a difference in the society we live in, and you will make a difference in the eternity of those you are connected to. Never forget that. If you'd like to learn more about Pastor David or Calvary Chapel, Chino Valley, please visit our website at calvaryccv.org. Thanks for listening, and have a great day.